A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll analyse the Ukrainian counteroffensive around Kharkiv, scrutinise the ongoing battle for Snake Island, and discuss what one expert believes are the three major strategic errors committed by Vladimir Putin. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 11th of May, day 77. And today, I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, assistant foreign editor Vinny Shireni, and assistant comment editor Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom and Vinicia for the latest updates from the war. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Uh, the most important update I would suggest is the news from Kharkiv up in the, the northeast of Ukraine. This is uh, Ukraine's second city, the city from which the pictures came in very early in the, in the early, early hours of the war, really, of, of Russia's, uh, Russia's assault. It's been under bombardment uh, since, the, since the war started. Um, as we've been reporting in the last few days, Russian forces have been pushed back. Um, it's, it's not a straight line, clearly, the front line around there, but um, they're looking to be about 50 kilometres, so 30 miles um, north and east of the city. And that is significant because that's kind of on the range of the vast majority of artillery systems they've got there. So it pushes the, the, the city or pushes the forces threatening the city away, allows, um, allows the population to breathe a little bit easier. I mean, President Zelensky last night in his, in his nightly news address correctly, I guess, um, described this as good news. But the, the governor of the region, Oleg Sinabukov, said that Russia had been leaving, had left behind, quote, deadly, deadly traps. Um, and he was at pains to impress upon civilians not to rush back to their homes for fear of, uh, as we've seen elsewhere in the country, fear of um, uh, areas being mined and, and booby-trapped and what have you. And of course, Regardless of mines and booby traps and other things, other ordnance that may have been left behind, the, many, many of the, uh, the structures are just simply unsound. So good news from Kharkiv. Um, it pushes. The, there are unconfirmed reports that the Russian forces in the area have been pushed as far back as the border. I mean, the border is only 15, um, well, depending on which bit you, you draw it from, but um, it's very, very close uh, to the, the portion of the border there. And there's Belgorod, the, the main logistic hub inside Russia, about a, hundred, a further 100 k's. So it's, um, it's fairly easy, I guess, for Russia to fall back on, its, on, its, on what will soon become internal lines. 
Um, so falling back to a safe to a safe place. Unlikely they will be surrounded, as we saw in um, around uh, Kiev when they were pushed back from there. But it's still a, a significant effort, very significant effort from Ukrainian forces to knit together these local counterattacks into a larger operational um, uh, operational event, if you like. They may well now pause because that, that that would have taken quite something out of them. But that might then, if this if this is if they are able to. To, to keep a toehold there, hang on to Kharkiv and the, and the surrounding area, then that could act as a as a sort of springboard to really threaten the supply lines down to, to Russia in the Donbass. Uh, I'll just take a pause there. Yeah, I think another story that's on um, our radar is what's happening in Kherson. Um, our listeners will remember Kherson was one of the first Ukrainian cities to be taken down in the south of the country. Um, and we've heard today from the leader of the Donetsk that um, he the that the city plans to ask Moscow to annex it. They're going to skip the referendum that we'd heard so much about it and that Zelensky had decried as a sham. And they're just going to go directly to Putin and ask him to sign a decree telling him to annex it. This would obviously be really significant um, if it's formally annexed in the same way that Crimea was. Um, That's another chunk of territory that Ukraine will have to fight very hard to get back. Russia's gains in the south seem a lot more solid than what we've been seeing in the east. As Don was just talking about, they've been pushing back around Kharkiv. Um, but Kherson, despite we have seen a lot of protests, we've seen you know a lot of pushback from residents there, but it is clearly under Russian control. They brought in the Russian ruble, they've been raising Russian flags. Um, and now, yeah, now this news that they're going to ask to be formally annexed. Can we talk a little bit about the fighting that's continuing on, on Snake Island? Um, Dom and Venetia, what's happening there and why does it matter? So Snake Island, a very small lump of rock in the northwest of the Black Sea, um, a few kilometres off the, off the coast of, um, of Ukraine, to the southwest of, of Odessa. Um, excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. So uh, famous for the, for the opening salvo in, in the war when the, uh, when the, the Mosfar was, uh, was told to get lost. Uh, by the by, the Ukrainian defenders, um, it was then overtaken by Russian forces, and it, and is now uh, no, notionally, I guess, in in Russian hands. Now, in and of itself, it is not it is not vital to Russia's interests in the region. So they they could launch or am, an amphibious assault against Odessa or anywhere else in the south uh, coast of Ukraine could be launched without needing to hold Snake Island. However, if Snake Island is held by the Ukrainians, any amphibious assault, any threat to um, to Odessa or to the, the coast along there, and of course there, there have been these claims from Russia that they're still interested in Transnistria, in Moldova, so any threat to that area um, it becomes much, much harder to achieve um, if if Ukraine hold, holds Snake Island. So it's been fought over repeatedly um, in the last few days, uh, much more effort has gone into that from from Ukraine since the sinking of the Moskva. So the Moskva was was providing, it had a number of roles, but it was essentially providing air defence and a big air defence umbrella underneath which other operations could take place. So without that, without that air defence protection, the the Russian forces on Snake Island are quite vulnerable. Any vessels seeking to resupply it are very vulnerable, and um, any any airborne elements, uh, helicopters trying to trying to land people, are are incredibly incredibly vulnerable as well. So it's been fought over. There's been a number of um, there's a number of foot, there's some footage on social media uh, 
taken by drone, we imagine, of um, Russia, uh, Ukrainian air activity bombing Snake Island. And, uh, and just the other day, there was, there was a report, there was imagery of, of a helicopter landing, um, troops coming out of the helicopter um, in a tactical formation to, 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 to affect some ac- activity on the island. Now, it was originally said, suggested this was Russian forces seeking to, to, take, uh, to, to, to reinforce the island and the, the helicopter was destroyed. <clears throat> we don't know how many casualties there were, but judging by the, the blast we, we saw on, the, on social media, it would have been very significant. Then it was suggested that, no, no, they, they wouldn't be Russians because Russia, Russia owns the island, so they, they have no need to affect a sort of tactical assault. Um, this must be Ukrainian, um, a Ukrainian helicopter that was destroyed. We now think it's, it actually is the first version. This uh, Russian force... Um, if they, if the forces on Snake Island had been had been so degraded, such that they were, for example, out of out of communications with their with their parent headquarters, then it would make absolute sense that any any Russian reinforcements going to the island w- would would um, treat everything as hostile until proved otherwise. So, so the the, the helicopter we saw that was an Mi eight um, transport helicopter, um, Mi eight you can tell because the. The tail rotor is on the, the starboard side, MI-17, the derivative of the MI-8, obviously has the tail rotor on the, on the port side. Um, but this, this, uh, this reinforcement did not work. It was um, filmed by a, we think, a TB-2 Baracta drone, and we think probably subject to the munition fired from either that drone or, or, or another one. And that report has been backed up by messaging on the, on the Telegram social media channel by the Wagner Group, Wagner Group being the the mercenary group under, <clears throat> excuse me, under the direction of the of the Russian state. So it looks as if, um, firstly, that attack was was a, a Russian reinforcement that that was destroyed. There's significant fighting over the over the island. If Ukraine can manage to hold it and then put um, air defence assets on it and and anti sea capabilities, including the British Brimstone missiles that are being sent out, then that will be very significant. Um, the brimstone missiles that are going out from from Britain are the land-based variant. However, it it only it's it's not it, it doesn't take a huge amount of adaptation to 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 change them into the seaborne variant. So, if Ukraine are able to take and hold, retake and hold Snake Island, put air defence assets on it, and uh, anti-maritime assets, anti-sea assets, then that will be very very significant. The British Defence Intelligence um, Daily Intelligence Assessment for today. Um, draws like this, you'll find that on on social media. Have a, have a look at that. But essentially, they're they're saying that if you, Ukraine are able to to hold and reinforce, um, then it will it would deny the northwest portion of the Black Sea to Russia. And of course, they need the northwest portion if they're going to have any kind of seaborne invasion, um, amphibious assault towards Odessa or further west. So Snake Island, it's a it's a tiny little pimple of rock, but it 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 will have operational and possibly even strategic uh, importance. Thanks, Tom. Let's move away from Ukraine uh, momentarily, go to Sweden. Boris Johnson is in Sweden. Uh, what has he announced? It sounds extremely significant. Venetia and Francis. Yeah, so he has announced a major new security pact, basically, with both Sweden and Finland, where he'll be visiting after... Him. He'll, he's going to Finland after he's in Sweden. Um and it's essentially to reinforce their security and fortify northern Europe's defences. The idea, it's its a bit light on specifics, what we know so far. Um, but I think the idea is basically that UK is offering some form of guarantees 
um, as Sweden and Finland prepare to join NATO. Um, We've known this was coming for a while. It's a huge change in the Nordics. Um, This was not seen as like a popular policy or anything like a goer um, a couple of months ago, but the Russian invasion has changed all of that. Um, We are expecting them to formally announce their bid for NATO NATO membership in the coming days, possibly tomorrow by the Finnish Prime Minister, Finnish President. Um, But that will leave them exposed during the time between when they announce that they want to apply and when they formally become members and Article 5 ticks in and they will have the backing of all NATO fellow countries. So this presumably is some kind of agreement to paper over that time and also to start to build um, ties with these countries beyond what already exists. Finland already hosts NATO troops for training, so there's a lot of cooperation there already. Um, but this is, this is the beginning of, a, of an, even, an even stronger security pact relationship that we're seeing. And if I could just jump in there and say that, uh, I, just to reiterate what Venetia was saying, that this is a very, very significant moment. Um, we've spoken previously on this podcast about uh, the Finnish war of 1939 when um, uh, the Finns went to war against uh, the Soviets after a Soviet invasion. So they have a long history of, of contesting territory um, with, the, with the Russian state. And, um, but as Venetia was saying, for really a whole generation after the Second World War, they were quite hesitant to um, engage engage too closely with the Western powers, particularly NATO, um, for fear of essentially poking the Russian bear and, 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 uh, and potentially leading to severe military consequences. Um, there has been a generational shift, I think, that is n- not just um, uh, triggered by Putin's invasion, but also people have many... The younger generations in in both of these countries have started to be more sympathetic to the idea of more closely aligning with the military alliances within Europe and with with uh, with Europe more generally. Um, and I think it is significant um, that particularly the Finnish Prime Minister, but to some extent the Swedish Prime Minister as well, represent this generational shift. The Finnish Prime Minister is, um, I think, in her thirties. And uh, it, it just speaks to something else that's going on on beneath the surface in in in, in both of these places. Um, just one other point as well, I would just add is that, as as Venetia was saying, the intention of Vladimir Putin from the very beginning of this war um, was to sow division in, um, in 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 the West and within the NATO alliance about how best to uh, to react to to Russian aggression. And clearly, this is the biggest indicator I think we have yet of of uh, just the extent to which that that policy has fundamentally failed because NATO has effectively now expanded another thousand miles. Um, and if that doesn't register as a as a failure on, on Putin's uh, radar, um, then I don't know what will. Thanks, Francis. Um, can we talk a little bit uh, about what's happening in Ukraine? Ukraine said it's today it's prepared to suspend the flow of some Russian gas to Europe. Um, what's happening there and what might be the impact of that? Yes, well, um, as you say, uh, this is a, another interesting development on, on, on in, in the war. So we've talked already about how there's the military front, there's the diplomatic front, and of course there's also the economic front um, that is currently being fought. Um, so as you say, Ukraine are uh, preparing to suspend the flow of Russian gas to Europe through one of the key transit zones. Um, obviously, this is 
in part trying to cut off um, sources of the Russian state to receive um, finance, financial support through the back door from um, other nations in Europe. But more significantly than that, actually, I think this is sending a, a clear signal to, to Germany. Um, this is one of the major um, transit points for, or for the Germans to receive around 30% of their gas, I believe. And so um, this is, again, a, 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 I think a, a signal to them that they are not going to continue to allow uh, Germany to um, be financing Russia in their in their desire to cheat buy their and purchase their their Russian energy. Um, just to speak to this ongoing, I suppose, uh, economic issue at the at the forefront of, of, the, of the current crisis um, it was interesting remarks made I believe it was yesterday by the vo- boss of Volkswagen who called for the EU to pursue a negotiated settlement um, to the war in the Ukraine for the sake for the sake of the continent's economy now of course um, Volkswagen one of the major German um, Companies, one of the major industries in Germany, of course, is, is car manufacture. And the fact that, that such a significant figure can make these proclamations, I, speak, I think, speaks to the mentality that's present in, 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 in many of the, um, so, well, amongst the German elites that we've commented on several times about the war in Ukraine. And I think that there is a real disconnect um, between German foreign policy and economic policy, and that it's um, being felt not only within Europe. Europe, but also within Germany. I think the German population have moved far more quickly than Olaf Scholz and, and the German government have. And whilst they have been, of course, forced in recent weeks to provide more heavy military support, as we've said many, many times, until Germany are willing to completely wean themselves off both Russian oil and gas, not just oil, not just gas, but both. Um, and thus far, they've only made a privilege, a, a, a real uh, progress on the former, um, then, then this war is likely to continue for much longer, um, just given the, the scale of the financial support that that state is offering Russia. So it's a real key battlefront in, in this conflict and one that, that at the moment we're seeing both sides are, are engaging in the, in the diplomatic spat over that. As I say, Ukrainians has, the Ukraine's foreign minister has actually condemned the remarks of, of, of the Volkswagen chief. So, yeah, significant progress on that this week. Thanks, Francis. Anything to add to that, Venetia and Dom? Well, just one point I should have mentioned there when we were discussing Finland is just to note that um, if Finland applies and is accepted for NATO membership, that will double the the length of the NATO border with Russia. So at the moment it's about 1,300 kilometres um, and with, with Finland that will, that will double to two, two, two 600 uh, kilometres. Now, I mean, that's not... That's not massive. I mean, it's only notable because uh, Vladimir Putin keeps going on about being surrounded by NATO. And at the moment, I think it's about four or five percent of his of his border is is with NATO. So, that, you know, hey, that's going to double to, let's say, 10, 11, 11 percent. It's not going to be massive, but there will be there will be a reaction um, framed around NATO encirclement. Uh, so, yeah, we should expect that. And just one final point, when I was with Ben Wallace last week in Finland and we were talking about this this, this possibility of Sweden and Finland applying and this sort of security gap, is there going to be a security void between applying and and being accepted? Um, because, of course, all 30 members have to have to say yes. Is there going to be a security void there before they're covered by the all-important Article 5? And Ben Wallace said no. And we reported at the time, this is not, this is not sort of you know, break, breaking state secrets, but he said, look, effectively, the, the security guarantee is going to be there. We got very close 
military, economic and diplomatic ties already with Sweden and Finland, that of course, of course, we would we would come to their aid if there if there was any any attack um, in the meantime. But when he turned to, to the possibility of a Russian attack with Finland, he just said, well, yeah, with what? I mean, there's not an, an awful lot left in the locker. So it's largely a moot point. But yes, the security guarantee um, would would be, of course, it's only the British defence minister saying this, um, but he, he, for UK's part, the security guarantee would be extended from the moment they, they applied. Thanks, Dom. Um, Venetia, would you like to comment on this? There's another story here that the leader of the Russian activist band Pussy Riot has managed to flee Moscow uh, to evade time in a penal colony. Uh, this is after criticising Putin's war in Ukraine. How did she manage to get out? Yeah, this is a great story. So she um, she disguised herself as a food courier. And there are pictures online of her in a sort of bright green jacket with one of those square delivery rucksacks that we all know all too well. Um, apparently, she fled. She managed to get to the Russian border. She was driven there um, by a friend. And then she managed to secure some European identity documents and then was escorted across Belarus into Lithuania. So she um, had to sort of go via Belarus as well. And everything was sort of highly secretive. And apparently she even fled wearing black three-inch heels without the laces, um, which is a reference to the fact that she's been in prison a lot under the Russian regime, and in prison you're not allowed your shoelaces. Um, she's she's a real activist figure. She's been very outspoken. Pussy Riot, obviously best known perhaps for um, exposing their breasts at Putin, writing messages, activist messages on their chests. Um, but they've long been critical of Putin's regime and have long been punished for it. Um, but clearly they've decided that the time has come, that it's not enough um, for them or for that activism to stay in Russia and keep being periodically jailed or perhaps they thought that this jail stint wouldn't be so periodic um, and most of Pussy Riot I believe have now left she was the leader and they're now going to be doing a tour around Europe starting in Berlin tomorrow Thanks Venetia, I mean that does seem to speak to the point I remember Natalia Vasilieva our Moscow correspondent came on here a couple of weeks ago and we asked her about Russian opposition and she said well, you know, what, what opposition? Most people have left or they're in prison. Um, and that goes to, I think, some of the other things we've said about uh, if the war goes worse for Putin, w- what might happen? And the answer might just be nothing because he controls all the levers of state that, and, and there isn't an obvious opposition figure to him. Um, Francis, does that, does that sound accurate to you or, or not? Yes, well, I, I think that does sound uh, accurate. Unfortunately, um, we've spoken, as I say, m- many times on this podcast about the, the, the particular case of, of, of Russia and the, the, the vast numbers of people who have left the country, several hundred thousand now, I think it may even be as many as half a million um, young people who have left as a consequence of, of essentially Putin's leadership and obviously that's particularly heightened in recent months um, following the uh, invasion of Ukraine. These are young people who are educated and and, uh, and the sort of I suppose what we would articulate is the middle class who are working in industries that essentially every good economy needs um, uh, sort of a, particularly a military one that's building a lot of highly advanced weaponry and technology you need sort of highly educated scientists and things like that but they are not just leaving but they are being encouraged to leave by Vladimir Putin um, for the simple reason that he sees that, uh, um, uh, anyone who is wobbling um, over their loyalty to the Russian state he would rather leave. Now, the challenge of this is, of course, that when you don't have that core 
opposition in a country that is ready to assume power or challenge power, then it means it is far less likely for there to be some sort of revolution or coup or democratic spring whatsoever. Um, uh, um, and... Uh, you know, this is something that that is going to be, I think, a real challenge um, for the West longer term um, is I don't see in, in the short term necessarily there being... Um, a, a, any any coup against Putin would have to come from within his own regime. But of course, his own regime are complicit in the crimes that have been committed in Ukraine. So it is not necessarily in their interests to try and oust him because they would, you know, face destabilising the state and face themselves being um, under the spotlight. So it's a very, very complicated picture. And I think... Um, as I've said many times, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there were a lot of people who were waiting in the wings who could fill in the spaces in the Czech Republic and other places. That won't be the case in Russia. And so I don't think we should hold out hope that, that any sort of um, coup or uprising is, is, is in the offing in the short term. Thanks, Francis. Um, just one more update I think we should talk about. David Beasley, the executive director for the UN World Food Programme, uh, has said that Ukraine is facing agricultural collapse unless its ports in Odessa are opened soon. Uh, Venetia, uh, do you have more to say on this? Yeah, so we've been covering a lot the food security aspect of this war, both for people in Ukraine and for people around the world, particularly in North Africa and the Middle East, who depend on Ukraine's exports of things like um, corn um, and sunflower oil for very basic foodstuffs. Um, and a lot of the products have been stuck in Ukraine um, because they just can't get out. And this speaks to the blockade in the Black Sea that we've been talking about to do with Snake Island. Um, the port in Odessa, which is where the vast majority of Ukraine exported um, its grains and other things, that has not been functioning since the beginning of the war. Um, it's been completely blockaded. So there's a lot of stuff backed up and this stuff can't get out anywhere. WFP have been warning that, you know, Ukraine can't handle um, keeping this stuff back anymore. The farmers also haven't been able to plant their harvest. Uh, land is heavily mined. A lot of equipment has been sabotaged. Um, the EU has also been looking at this issue, trying to figure out a way to help. The land border is just very, very slow. Um, but they're now trying to see if they can create some kind of fast track system to get it to Poland's Baltic ports and then export grains by sea to the various countries around the world where they need to go. Um, but it's a massive issue and one that will continue to be in the spotlight and is sort of rumbling in the background as more and more countries suffer food security issues. There's a cost of living crisis in a lot of places in the world right now being caused by the Ukraine war to do with fuel and food prices. Um, so yeah, one to keep an eye on. Thanks very much, Venetia. Thank you so much for your time. Francis, um, I know you've been working with editing Philip O'Brien, who's writing us for today about the three, what he sees as the three major strategic mistakes Putin has made in this conflict. Um, can you talk a bit about what his argument is? What, what are the big mistakes from Putin? Yes, well, um, it should be live um, um, either, if it's not already, um, very shortly, imminently. Um, so Philip O'Brien of St Andrews University, um, he's, we've, we've commissioned many pieces from him and I'm sure um, he's very vocal on Twitter, so many of our listeners will also be familiar with his fantastic analysis um, throughout the conflict. Um, but uh, yes, he's writing a piece for us about why, effectively, Putin has, has failed in the Donbass and what his three big miscalculations were. And some of them echo things that we've, of course, commented 
commented on on this podcast throughout. So it's quite a good summary piece for anybody who's who's trying to catch up on on, on where we are as, as as we begin this new week in Ukraine. Um, but essentially, the, the the three miscalculations that he defines are the um, significant number of forces in the Donbass that uh, are not really militarily operational. They're not there at the capacity they need to be. They're not they are not um, well rested, and so uh, as a consequence of that, uh, of course, they, they you know they've just they're trying to recover from a from a, effectively a debilitating defeat, and um, that. that when you're trying to recover, you, it takes time, and they have not been given that time to uh, to restore themselves, to replenish supplies and morale as well. Um, so that's one of them. Uh, another is the um, uh, sort of they've not been able to actually get the numbers of of, 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 of soldiers and munitions that are necessary for the scale of the um, uh, the renewed. Uh, invasion in the Donbass. Of course, we think that part of the reason for that is this May the 9th deadline that Putin initially had to uh, to seeking to achieve numerous military successes that he could uh, that he could cite. I think it was interesting that he didn't really have much to say um, on the May 9th, um, which again speaks to the crisis within the Russian army. Um, and lastly, something else that, um, that Phillips O'Brien talks about is how the the, the as bad as things are now the longer term picture and the longer term miscalculation um, from from the russian perspective is that things are going to get a lot worse for them that, that it seems to be that initially in the conflict they thought that their position would would possibly strengthen as the ukrainian perhaps will to resist would weaken um, as they uh, sort of ground down in an attritional style conflict um, the the ukrainian will to resist but also the military capabilities of the, of the ukrainian state but it would appear now actually the opposite has proven the case. We've spoken about the very, very high attrition rates that the Russian army has suffered, perhaps as high as 30% um, at its peak. Um, and uh, and as a consequence of that, they just do not have the long-term capacity to continue fighting the war on the scale they were in those early weeks. And that is, I think, a, a reason why this the, their progress has slowed down as they are not able to take as many risks. They don't have the manpower to spare. They don't have the weapons to spare and the tanks, etc. So, um, yes, it's um, a, a, a very interesting piece which I'd recommend that people read that just states where we are at this state in terms of the military miscalculations that have been made and it would appear that really as things stand um, it's going to be very very difficult for there to be any real um, way out for the Russian soldiers that the picture is just going to get increasingly worse and um, as a consequence of that it, it, it's likely that, that they will have no choice but to, to bunker in and and hope that, that, that at some point the Ukrainians will want to negotiate some sort of peace but um, I, I both based on the statements from Zelensky and the Western resolve and the increase in military support that's been provided to Ukraine, the higher level weaponry and everything else, I think that's highly unlikely. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, it's going to be a um, a longer war, um, but I think it's one that what that you, Russia is is unless there was a very serious escalation on the nuclear front or some high some chemical warfare, um, that, that that things are are not going to go the way that the Russian state um, anticipated. And as and as I say, I hope that that remains the case case because my god if they do use chemical warfare or, or or anything further than that then i think that this conflict will become even more um serious and uh and one that we would certainly not like to see thank you very much francis dom nichols what do you make of that uh, of that analysis yeah i've got no no stones to throw at it whatsoever i mean phillips o'brien he, he he knows his knows his onions um i mean i i referred to him yesterday he was the 
It was his Twitter feed that put me onto that paper from the Centre for European Policy Analysis about whether or not um, Russia, the Russian military, has always been a been a fairly hollow force, and that we have built ourselves um, against it, possibly unnecessarily, but maybe maybe we've sort of partly created. I, I, I'd say. Um, I don't want to say created the problem because that, that's leaning too close to Putin's narrative that, that you know, it's NATO expansion and all the rest of it. I don't, I'm not trying to suggest that for one moment, but, I, but the, the paper that uh, Phillips O'Brien was referring to, and he did a Twitter thread on it, was just suggesting that maybe we had we'd built our systems and processes and organisations against, against a paper tiger or a, against a, a force that actually now looks to be to, to have very credible nuclear weapons and then not a lot else. And that, I mean, that's a very dangerous place to be. But, um, but yeah, a long-winded way of saying Phillips O'Brien, Phillips P. O'Brien, a, a one, to, uh, one to follow on social media um, if you have the time for, for regular and very, very um, concise and thought-provoking strategic and operational updates. I should just add that um, I'm also hoping to, to get um, him to write a piece in the coming days um, about thinking long term about the military lessons. Just speaking to Don's point that it will be, I think, when the conflict began, a lot of the initial talk was this shows the need for heavy infantry, um, uh, sorry, heavy, 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 heavy munitions, tanks, etc., artillery, increased investment in infantry numbers and everything else. Actually, uh, he, as he will, will hopefully point out, many of the um, uh, sort of lessons from this conflict has been on the virtue of um, advanced weaponry and how that can actually dist- completely demolish um, uh, the Russian states or a, a military aggressor's tank capacity and of course drones as well. So there are other lessons rather than just you know we need to expand our military forces and I'm hoping to, to, that he'll um, be able to write on that soon so watch this space. But just picking up on something else that Dom said um, is, is you know is this a pa- is Putin a paper tiger is Russia a, a paper tiger etc. Um, certainly from the perspective of Poland that is not the case and we did a piece in the newspaper yesterday the physical newspaper and it's also online from the Polish Prime Minister who um, argues very eloquently actually uh, and, and, and very interestingly that he from his perspective and from Poland's perspective that Putin is actually more dangerous than Stalin and Hitler which I know sounds a very extreme thing to say but the reason that he, he he articulates this is that of course Putin has nuclear weapons whilst which um, um, Hitler never had um, and Stalin did have but only very late and um, uh, he, there was never really the um, at that point the, 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 the capacity to use them in the same way that the Putin has the weapons were nowhere near as advanced etc etc so there's that side but he also he interprets the ideology as being um, much deadlier than that of Hitler and Stalin's in the sense that the internet is at Putin's disposable and he's able to infect, and that's, this is his words, infect um, with millions of instances of fake news. And he says that this will long-term pose a, a deadly uh, threat to Europe and it must be rooted out entirely. Entirely, um, It's an interesting argument, as I say, and I, I think um, it, it's well worth reading and, and being paying serious attention to. After all, Poland have been, I would argue, perhaps the had the most common sense approach to how to handle Putin in the long term and have obviously been one of the most um, stoical supporters of, of Ukraine and also in taking taking in refugees, etc. So I think, um, in a sense, history will look kindly on them and, and their attitudes towards Putin. But where I would perhaps challenge him is, I think, in the 1930s, when one looked at the ideologies of, um, of Nazism and, and communism, there was a, a, a real hunger for... Um, for uh, 
experimentation on political societies in that era, of course, precipitated by the economic collapse that had taken place, um, uh, it, it sort of hyperinflation in, in Germany in 1923, but also the great the Wall Street crash of 1929, which really um, uh, meant that people were questioning, challenging openly um, the democratic systems of Europe. And I remember um, Mark Rizal, the historian, and wrote a fantastic book called Dark Continent, where his whole thesis really is that actually at various different points, democracy was was so fragile that you wouldn't have bet on fran- on democracy coming out of the 20th century as the victor. I don't think that we are in that state now. I think democracy and liberalism, um, for all of our scepticism about Fukuyama's theory about the end of history, um, has actually still has life in it left, um, and and um, and we have and there is that that appreciation of it in, 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 certainly in in the Western in Europe that was not there in the 1930s. So I don't think in that regard that it is as serious as, as, as Nazism and, and, and communism were. But I think he is absolutely right to take Putin's threats very seriously. And of course, the nuclear question is very, very relevant to this and, and one that I think he's absolutely right to, for him to draw attention to. So I'd urge listeners to give it a read because, as I say, it offers a very interesting perspective on this. Thank you very much, Francis. Before we go to your both of your final thoughts, um, we've got a question from a listener asking if we know much about the POWs on both sides. You know, do we do we know how many Russian and Ukrainian troops are POWs? Do we know where they're being kept? Um, what kind of information has been collected about them? And do we have a sense of how they're being treated? Um, Dom and Francis, have we heard much about this? Can, can we can we say much? Um, no, I, I don't have those uh, those facts and figures to hand i'm not going to try and bluff an answer now but it's a really interesting area i will uh, i will dig into that and and we'll come back uh, if not tomorrow but then in, in the very near future because it, it deserves a more a more fleshed out and considered answer i would just say that i i'd I echo what dom says i think it's something that requires further research before we say more um that could in theory be or could potentially be wrong um but Prisoners of war actually have a huge impact on conflicts in a way that I don't think is is really appreciated. When we study things uh, in, in, in relation to conflict, it always tends to be about um, numbers of military resources, the number of infantry, etc., etc., the great battles, the great figures, the great generals. Um, we don't think about prisoners of war and the impact that these can have. But of course, when you've got numerous, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions in the case of the Second World War of prisoners of war, this is a major, it could be a major um, have a major impact on an economy. It can have a major impact on um, the amount of soldiers that are required to guard prisoners of war, etc. So it is it is relevant. And of course, atrocities committed against prisoners of war can also harden the resolve of a nation to resist um, an occupier or an aggressor or vice versa. So again, that's, that's significant. And I just flag one other um, um, interesting point on this in relation to the First World War. Um, Niall Ferguson in his book, um, The Pity of War, which is his sort of analysis of the First World War, makes a very interesting argument about 1918. And it used to be the case, he argues, in the early stages of the war, so 1914 to 17, that uh, the the fear on the of, the of the Germans was such that they didn't want to be captured by the British or particularly by the French, because the fear was that they would be treated harshly, that they would eventually be executed, etc. And of course, the French had more reason to commit 
um, what I suppose we might say as war crimes, given the um, atrocities that were committed on their own soil and on Belgian soil. Um, but as the war went on, the Allies sort of cottoned on that the way to achieve mass surrenders from a very low morale German army was to treat the prisoners of war very, very well. And um, and and this they did. And of course, when the um, the, the the spring offence of the Hundred Days began um, at the end of the First World War, there were m- mass mass um, um, surrenders on the part of the German army when they realised that actually they would be treated better and they didn't have the resolve to fight anymore. The reason I mention this, not only thinking about it in the sort of geo-military, geopolitical sense, is of course this has echoes of what Ukraine did in the very early stages of this conflict, when they essentially said we're going to treat Russian soldiers well, we're going to let them call their mothers and we're even going to let their mothers come and collect them from the border um, because we don't blame some of these conscripts, we actually blame Putin. I think that's a very, very clever piece of um, uh, I suppose it, it, means of justifying why uh, showing how you're different from your enemy and, and winning in this sort of information war around the world. But it may well, we don't know yet the extent to which this has filtered through to the Russian army. But if you imagine that you are facing a brutal um, uh, command structure, one that really um, fetishizes the bullying of, of conscripts and recruits and um, and hazing and all of this. Um, if you're facing that and you're facing the Ukrainian resistance, which is far, far steeper, and you feel you've been lied to when you actually go on the ground and you're, you've not been well fed, your munitions are low, your morale is low, and you know you're going to be treated well by the Ukrainians, I think that the likelihood of surrender becomes very, very likely. And I think the Ukrainians have cottoned on to that. So we will look further into this but um but and because it's a very very interesting question thank you francis well thank you for your question bob uh all i can say is keep on listening and we'll we'll get to it with some more detail for you but thank you francis for that um well can i get both of you it's wednesday afternoon um can we get both of your thoughts on what we should be looking for in the next few days yeah um for me northeast southwest so northeast kharkiv if uh, ukraine can still keep that toehold and push push the Russians even further away outside of artillery range. Um, it would be a good thing. If they can push the Russians back to the border, that would be very significant. And if they can start, if they can push them so far back that they're now interdicting the supply lines down from Belgorod down into the Donbass, that will be very, very significant. And in the southwest, Snake Island, for all the reasons that we said at the start of this, of this space and this podcast, um, Snake Island in the hands of Russia is largely symbolic. Snake Island back in the hands of Ukraine um, poses a massive, massive headache for Russian forces in the northwest of the Black Sea and probably discounts any significant military activity from the sea against Odessa. Um, my final thought is, is just a, based on a piece of analysis that I read from the Cold War historian Sergei Vradchenko. Um, he makes an interesting, I think, piece of analysis, which is just something that's going to be relevant in, in, in the weeks ahead, where he comments on how, in his view, there needs to be a complete Russian defeat. And he's not just talking about, he, he thinks one that needs to be sort of worse than actually what happened to Russia in 1991, when the narrative that was able to be picked up within the Russian state was that the USSR had folded under its own weight, that in a sense it had defeated itself. And that's why so many Russians um, wrongly accuse Gorbachev of, of treason. Um, and it was, as I say, Putin was able to ride to power because he promised to deliver strength and to restore um, uh, vitality to the Russian state that had been lost um, and, and sort of to purge it of its traitors, etc., etc. But actually, if 
in a sense, Russia is able to fail on its own terms. If the Putin regime can be failed to, shown to fail on its own terms, um, then this may well be, he argues, um, a, an opportunity for a real radical re-evaluation within Russia, one that wakes up the Russian people to, um, to, 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 to the fact that, that these lies, essentially, that they have been told um, since the 1990s were not true and that the Russian state is actually much weaker um, and, 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 and more diplomatically isolated and that there needs to be an urgent change. Um, you know, in order for there to be a dem- democratic state born or at least a state that, that is not in the hands of, 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 of men like Vladimir Putin, the public will have to be have find ways to wake up. And sometimes the only way in which people can wake up in the in a in a state like that is for it to fail on its own terms, just like communism, one could argue, did, and to some extent, just as Nazism did. Um, And so um, if we need to see a similar um, thing here, then I think that's something that we should be sensitive to when pondering the the big question of where do we go long term and how we handle Russia. So I just thought an interesting piece of analysis and one that I'm sure we will discuss again at some point. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Alice Heary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.